Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Wednesday, February 18th, 2015. So I have to apologize for the late start in 2015, but as everyone can understand, I'm sure the turn of the year is always a busy time with holidays and food and great things like that. So to start 2015, I'd like to introduce this podcast, which is going to go back uh, with Cecile Sarabian and another installment of a student conference in conservation science. But before getting into that with Cecile, uh, just to mention a couple of upcoming podcasts uh, in the future, in the near future, I hope, we'll be hearing from Dr. Naobi Okayasu, who's with the World Wildlife Fund in Japan. And we'll also hear from some conservationists and researchers uh, in a, a special focus podcast on issues in biodiversity conservation in Sabah, uh, Malaysian Borneo in, uh, specifically. And we'll also be presenting a podcast with the coordinator of the Project for the Application of Law for Fauna. But before all of these, let's get back into today's podcast. So I welcome back, uh, apparently, the SCCS correspondent, Cecile Sarabian. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So you have quickly become our, as I mentioned, correspondent for SCCS conferences around the world. So tell us about Brisbane. Yeah, SCCS Australia was held at the University of Queensland between the 19th and the 29th of January. And I went there, yeah, to warm up, but also to present uh, a talk and, and of course, to report for the primate guest. So it was very diverse in terms of uh, students' nationality, for example. We had students from Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Madagascar, Malaysia. And Australia, of course. I think in the first interview that you present, it's also mentioned that this kind of covers a different geographic region for, for conservation and reaches yeah. a different type of audience. Yeah, so basically, yeah, I think the majority of the students and, and the, the plenary speakers were walking between this the Himalayas and the Fiji, which is a, a biodiversity hotspot, mm -hmm. one of the biggest. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us about the structure of this conference? I mean, how does it compare and contrast to other SCCS yeah. events? Um, so compared to Bangalore, it's much more intimist. Uh, I think we were about 100 participants in this one. And in Bangalore, we were over 350. So um, yeah, more op opportunities to, to interact and to go talk to the people uh, more time as well. But it was also a much longer uh, conference because it was over two weeks uh, period. So we started with three days of presentations and then three days of excursions where we went to the Australia Zoo, for example, and the Lone Pine Cola Sanctuary near Brisbane. And then the next week, it was a week of workshops, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, so fewer participants, but a much more in intensive, interactive experience. Yeah. And, and a lot of yeah. learning opportunities. So you, yeah. you wanted to talk something about your workshop experience there. Yeah, yeah, I attended uh, one workshop particularly, uh, yeah, I think amazed us all the yet at attendees of this workshop. It was called uh, Creative Conversations About Conservation, and it was organized by uh, the Collective Artifact, which is a collective of scientists and artists, which aims to explore new ways of communicating conservation science. And we had a couple of hours to come up with a project, a group project. So we were working per groups and it was completely free, but we had to create a project um, facilitating this um, 
process of uh, communicating conservation science. And one good example was a group of students who came up with the idea of creating a podcast. Great idea. <laughs> uh, but a podcast that would be released in India for local communities and communicating um, their research about uh, wildlife and human conflicts. But a podcast making uh, made out of only sounds. So there was a sound artist uh, at this workshop called uh, Leah Barclay. And uh, she thought that it was a great idea and she offered to produce the podcast. So Wow. So, yeah, turning that, that short little workshop into something actionable sounds pretty yeah. <laughs> impressive. Within two hours. Yeah. So great. And at this workshop there, there was also... Uh, so Payal Bal, one of the co-founder of Artifact, I think, and Ariel Marcy, who is a, a young scientist and game designer. Um, and yeah, I, I came back to, to Japan uh, with her game as an omiyage, as a present for, for the <laughs> Primate Research Institute. So um, it was quite good. Um, so it's, it's called Go Extinct. And this game uh, is about evolution and educating, learning about evolution. Um, the board is a phylogenetic tree where you have to gather the different uh, families of, mm. of um, yeah, species. Yeah. So. yeah, so kind of in the way that the, these kind of conferences want to spring young people into action, this kind of game maybe instead of just raising awareness about issues actually has young kids getting involved and doing things and learning kind of hands-on what's yeah. what's going yeah. on so that's pretty cool and i just wanted to mention that that game on the cover of the box it mentions it was funded by kickstarter so <clears throat> i think these kind of developing um call them institutions or programs like kickstarter which allow um, young people and people who want to take action the opportunity to get some funding to do those things it's really great to see the the diversity of application of that source of funding yeah yeah so i, I told ariel i will bring back I, i'm gonna bring your back your your game to japan instead of bringing you know cookies or stuff that <laughs> you always brought uh, i will bring back your game and then i also i started like very enthusiastic and say oh that's that's a really good idea i i, I want to translate your game into farsi into persian yeah um and then I saw the game, I opened the box, and I saw this massive phylogenetic tree on the board. <laughs> I said, like, oh, maybe, no, too, sorry. Too much, too soon. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it wouldn't be possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just for future reference, you know, the game was great uh, souvenir, but how about a game and cookies next time? Okay, so moving on to what you presented there. Um, yeah. You were there also, in, in addition to representing the primate cast, you were representing Roots and Suits Iran. Yeah, so... At SCCS Bangalore already, I presented a poster about our project, but this time I gave a talk. I had the opportunity to give a talk about uh, Roots and Shoots Iran and our nature school uh, based in Mashhad, which is the second biggest city um, in Iran. Um, our school is called Kavikonch Nature School, uh, which had its official opening no later than uh, last December where with um, government officials. So it was a quite good uh, start. And since then, we have been receiving children uh, every day. And next week, we are going to have um, an exhibition in Tehran uh, for five days, uh, in, where we hope to receive the visit of the head of the environmental organization, uh, who is um, Masume Eptekar. Uh, she was one of the awardee for the 
champion of the earth in 2006. So she's a quite big figure in Iran. Mm -hmm. And we hope that she will yeah, somehow get um, interested in the, in the project. So our, our goal, again, is still to facilitate this um, relation between children and nature, something that is becoming harder and harder in Iran as 75% of the population is living in cities. Mm -hmm. So, And so how was that received at the conference? Did you get any uh, useful feedback and further interactions with other people? Yeah, it was uh, well received. Um, still, not that much people knew about uh, what is Roots and Shoots. Um, but about the concept, um, I often heard during presentations the importance of this relation between children and nature. And, and in fact, um, I had students also coming to me at the end of the presentation who wanted to start similar activities in their home country. And for example, this student from Brazil, who um, after this conference went in touch with Woods and Shoots groups in Brazil. And then she told me um, not so long ago that she will join them after her trip to Australia. So, Great. Yeah. Yeah, so you can actually see the outcomes of these kind of getting these students together and how different people can get involved later and learn through networking and what, what kind of things are out there for them to do. That's exactly. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so one of the first things you said to me when you came back after this conference was how immediately you wanted to start <laughs> implementing some of the ideas and um, things you learned at these student conferences into your own work. So. How important is it for you, or now collectively you've had two uh, student conferences in conservation science and one more coming soon in, in Cambridge, which we'll talk about in a second, but how important or what kind of impact is that having on kind of the way you see things and your outlook for your own place here? Well, I'm, I'm currently in kind of, um, or I have a more pure research uh, background. But I, I've always been interested in conservation, so for me it's it's great to attend such um, such conferences and, and interact with search network. Um, but my going into these conferences and then going back to a, a research institute and I, I I aim to implement more conservation science or to raise the level of uh, conserva conservation awareness into into the scientific community. And um, and I think it's it's important because scientists are on the front line of search issues. They are aware of those issues. They are working in areas where um, we have environmental and wildlife issues. So, but something we brought up with um, Kay, for example, one of the interviewee of uh, this podcast, studying the impact of microplastic on marine wildlife, is that. It should begin with ourselves, and we were even surprised that, uh, for example, at this conference, at a student conference on conservation science, people were not necessarily uh, behaving sustainably. Um, for example, we saw uh, food waste. We saw that the beans, uh, like during coffee breaks, there were no recycling. Uh, <laughs> so this kind of example. So I think, yeah, science, even conservationists have still lots of work ahead and maybe uh, starting with themselves. Yeah. Okay, um, before we get into SACS Cambridge, just can you give us a quick synopsis of what kinds of interviews we'll be hearing, uh, what kind of topics will be discussed in the, the next hour? Yeah, so it will range from the use of, um, the customary use of filtering parrots in the highland of Papua New Guinea, 
coming to the impact of microplastic on our oceans and marine wildlife, to investigating the Chinese ivory trade. Um, yeah, and most of the talks that you will hear um, won the prize at this uh, conference. Yeah, I thought maybe you had some in with the judges, but apparently all of the people you selected to interview ended up winning prizes. But I, I didn't know that because we conducted the, the, the interviews before before we knew they, they, they won the prize. But four out of the nine uh, interviewees in this podcast, yeah, won the prize. So. And many of the others were either plenaries or keynote speakers, so yeah. obviously not in the competition. And we should probably just give a brief mention that um, in some cases here, due to technical difficulties with the audio um, by ungoverned environmental conditions, I guess you can say, um, we had to omit some parts of certain interviews and even um, remove one interview entirely. So can you just... Yeah, yeah, I, I apologize for, for this, but um, because the, the conference was held, the presentations were just for three days. So I had, I had the booth just for three days at the venue, but otherwise the, the rest of the interviews have to be conducted outside, basically. And on an evening, I sat down with Professor Lei Chao from the Chinese Academy of Sciences, who gave a talk on um, migratory birds um, in, along the, the Yangtze River. Uh, it was a very, very inspiring talk as she, she was also one of the plenary speakers of, of this conference. But unfortunately, um, because of too windy evening, uh, we had to remove this, this interview. So I hope that in the future, somehow, someday, somewhere, I will catch up with Lei and be able to uh, conduct an interview with her. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, lastly about this. So as in Bangalore, we had a lot of help setting up the Primate Cast. Um, so we'd like to again thank them there. And for this time as well, I'd like to thank the organizers and everybody in Brisbane who helped out uh, the Primate Cast get set up there. So thanks very much. Okay, so uh, last order of business at CCS Cambridge. Can you give details for that upcoming podcast and event? Yeah, so it will be held um, at the University of Cambridge between March 24th and to March 26th. So yeah, be sure that I, I will be there and <laughs> <laughs> and I will be also presenting a poster about uh, Roots and Shutsi Run. So. Great, so best of luck with that. And you'll be back in early April to start your PhD work here at the Primate Research Institute. Yes, finally. <laughs> okay, uh, and we'll be presenting that podcast sometime in April. So without further ado, I guess we should move on to SECS Australia and uh, hear the show that that you have put together here for everyone. Okay, let's go back to the Seine, let's go back to Brisbane and see what was this conference about. My name is Hugh Possingham. I'm a professor of ecology and mathematics at the University of Queensland and I direct two national research centres. One uh, looks at environmental decision making at a global scale and the other one, which has recently started, is a national centre for research in threatened species recovery. All right, um, so Hugh, can you tell us a bit more about what is SCCS Australia and when mm. it started? So maybe six or seven years ago, I was one of the keynote speakers at the SCCS in Cambridge, which has been going now for more than a decade. Um, I thought it was a great event. It was just a three-day conference there and I met lots of students. Uh, they enjoyed it a lot. They had lots of interactions with each other, but also people uh, that weren't students as well. I thought, well, we should try and do this in Australia. Very hard for Australians to get, to get all the way to Europe. 
and most of the people there were Europeans. They funded quite a few people from Africa and a little bit from Asia, but not many people from our part of the world. So I thought, well, why don't we do this in Australia? It took me a long time to do it, but um, 2013 we had our first conference. That was two years ago. We'll probably only do it every two years. <clears throat> the one thing we did was a little bit different. Instead of just having the three-day conference, we have fully funded using money from the Thomas Foundation, who's a philanthropist who I advise, and the Thomas Foundation uh, have given us $50,000 and we can fully fund around about 30 students from uh, poorer countries in the region uh, like Cambodia, Fiji, Solomons and so we fully fund them airfares, accommodation, everything, they pay nothing because Australia's very expensive um, and so we thought well just to bring people here for three or four days and visit some talks wasn't enough so we've added some field trips but we've also added four days of workshops and training which mm -hmm. is next week um, where they can learn basic things about writing grant proposals, giving talks, dealing with the media, technical things like learning R, GIS, spatial planning, decision science. So a lot of that, again, all that's done for free. So we keep it very short. Almost everything we're doing here is uh, basically staff and postdocs and students in our centres that are running the whole conference for free. And we can keep the cost down. And, and then now it goes for 10 days, which also gives the students a lot more chance to interact with each other. So part of it is obviously the science side, but I think the most important part of these conferences is the fact that people are forming their peer group, and most people's peer group forms inside their own university or their country, but this is a chance to form a network of friends that's international. And I suppose, finally, I mean, the United Kingdom's a lovely place, Cambridge is lovely, but the United Kingdom has no biodiversity values almost at all. There's almost no endemic species. Yet between the Himalayas and Fiji, there's probably 30% of all the species on the planet in a very small area. So marine and terrestrial. So to me, this is the most important region in the world in terms of biodiversity. It seems to have less conservation science than particularly North America through to Central America and then Europe through to Africa. There's a lot more conservation scientists. So we're really missing out. And this wasn't a chance to try and build a bigger group of people interested in conservation in the region. And I think it worked pretty well for most of the students who attended the conference. Now, in the second part of this interview, we are going back to Hugh Possingham's talk, where he discussed the trade-off that conservationists often have to face between monitoring and management, or in other terms, between learning and taking action. Yeah, I think a lot of ecologists are trained to uh, monitor things and they always want more data, they want more information. And I think if you're in pure ecology, obviously that's the game, isn't it? We're trying to progress knowledge, information is essential. But when we start moving into applied conservation, um, uh, we do have to decide every time we spend a dollar spent on monitoring and science and evaluation of things, we're actually not spending a, a dollar on managing something. So if we're looking after threatened species or ecosystems or ecosystem services, we've really got to decide that trade-off. And the tendency from scientists is always to tell the management agencies to monitor more. And in some cases, I think they get sick of it because they start wondering, well, why am I spending all this money gathering information, analysing information, reporting on the information, and often there's no feedback between that information and the management. Now, the objective of an applied manager, a conservation biologist, is actually to try and solve, save a species or save an ecosystem uh, or stop something, a threat. Uh, 
And if that's the objective, then you have to evaluate monitoring in the context of that objective. And if the monitoring is just being turned into publications, nothing else, mm -hmm. and isn't changing management, then the monitoring has no role in an applied discipline. Uh, it's a bit like the difference between engineering and physics. The physicists, of course, they can, they're studying the world. But engineers, they're building bridges and they're building roads. And I consider conservation uh, scientists are engineers. They're there solving the problem. Engineers do monitor things, but they monitor what they need to monitor to make sure the bridge doesn't fall down or uh, that their spending's on track. So they monitor what they need to solve the problem, which is to build the bridge so it doesn't fall down and it's cheap and it gets people from A to B. So it's purpose-driven monitoring. And I think uh, so many conservation biologists have come from ecology, from a pure background as an undergraduate, they've actually haven't been trained to make their monitoring applied. And often they uh, will be advising people to monitor too much. So I think one of the solutions to this is in management issues, we should maybe monitor fewer things, but we should monitor those few things much better. Uh, so often we're funding lots of management interventions for lots of species over a big scale and we make everybody monitor everything. But a lot of the monitoring is of a poor quality, never gets analysed, never gets published. But probably what we really need to do is pick the winners, pick the really contentious, interesting questions, monitor those things well. So I'm not saying stop monitoring. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying make sure you know why you're monitoring. And if you can't answer the question, now I've counted this thing or measured this thing, tell me how any how that knowledge will change what I do on the ground. If you can't answer that question, then you're not monitoring for purpose. There is an unanswer question, mm. which is how much data do we need? Uh, That's to, right. Yeah. yeah. And we've, we've written now uh, maybe 20 papers on some of these issues, like um, how much data do you need? So one of our best papers in Ecology Letters by Hedley Grantham showed that uh, in South Africa, if we look back at the way they've expanded their reserve system, and if they were building a reserve system using standard reserve design principles, trying to conserve, let's say, all the plants, how much plant data would you mm -hmm. need? And we found out that they, to make very good decisions, they needed 10% of the plant data they had. So they already had 10 times as much plant data. And if at any point in time somebody had said, let's stop expanding the reserve system and wait for a while until we get more plant data, they would have definitely been wrong. Because not only do you potentially waste money, but potentially also you delay action. And in conservation, sometimes it's better to act now and conserve areas before they're destroyed. <coughs> so telling people you, you can't do something because you haven't got enough information is often one of the worst things scientists can do and conservation biologists. And often, in fact, governments uh, stop action by doing that. They say, we don't know enough, so let's not do any more conservation actions until we have more information. And then, as we say, the world falls to pieces while we take no action. And scientists often buy into that by taking grants to gather more information. What they should be doing is saying, no, you need to keep acting. And then they should be working out, would that inf information have any value in terms of future decisions? Which leads us through to some of our more recent work on value of information analysis. So you actually work out explicitly what is the value of that information, how much money of my budget should I spend on it and how, is that information more valuable than just doing more things and, and it's possible to do it it's, it's not easy so we're working on trying to make it easier for people to actually do this trade-off between monitoring and management
All right. I, I hope it's the way um, it's going. Let's end this uh, short discussion with um, decision points. So mm. What is Decision Point about? Yes, so Decision Point uh, is a monthly magazine that comes out from the two centres that I direct. And about eight years ago, we realised that <coughs> managers and politicians and bureaucrats and uh, people in non-government organisations like uh, WWF, uh, they have very little time to read the scientific literature and often they can't access the scientific literature. Mm-hmm. So we employed somebody who's very good at writing called David Salt. And David Salt is a science writer, has a science degree, uh, and we work with him to take each of our publications, either singly or in groups, and turn them into one or two page more popular stories. Not a, not a silly and glib as a press release, but more substantive, but the math would be taken out, a lot of the figures would be taken out, and a 6,000 word publication in conservation biology would turn into about a 700 word story with pictures and really focusing on what it means for the policy maker and the manager. So Decision Point's been running for almost 10 years. We have 5,000 subscribers from around the world. Uh, Most of them are still in Australia, but we're trying to expand the Mm -hmm. international base. And we're also trying to uh, see if other people in other universities who are doing more applied conservation want to turn their articles into these stories. And we get very good response. So uh, several thousand people in Australia regularly read Decision Point and their managers, their people are making decisions and they find that format of information much better than papers. If they really want to go to the paper, then they can then email us and we send them the paper. So uh, it means that they can get our handle on the literature much quicker and in a much more pleasant fashion than trawling through Web of Science or Google Scholar. Yeah, great. And I think you can subscribe for free, right? That's right. Yeah. So you can uh, go um, online at www.decision-point.com.au. That's right. Or you can Google Decision Point yeah. Possingham. All right. It'll get you there as well. So uh, it's easy to get to and uh, we hope to make it more international in the next few years. International. That's exactly what this conference was about. So let's start the journey. My name is Grace Nugi and I represent the Wildlife Conservation Society and I'm, uh, my presentation was based on the uh, customary use of vulture and parrots uh, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and um, that was to attain a, for my um, honours degree in the University of Papua New Guinea. Uh, basically the uh, research was done as a, on, on a basis of finding out um, uh, relating um, the population decline, the declining trend of uh, the vulture and parrots, to um, how uh, p- uh, the Highlanders uh, use the feathers in their hairdresses, and um, what we found was uh, basically quite uh, quite a huge number of birds are killed every year, and that's uh, about 1,000 1, birds per year, and that's only within that um, small study site, which is the Karawagi district. And uh, apart from that, in the province alone, there's six other districts, which I think if I had um, uh, carried out more um, questionnaires around that, we would find there's a lot more birds are killed than um, we imagined. Uh, the, um, about three parrots are required to do one single head ornament, and then one person owns three of those head ornaments. So on average, about 13 birds per person. And then um, they're being replaced, uh, the replacement frequency is about 20, uh, 20 years. 
So I think um, the fact that the people are quite preserving it quite well, um, that's that's the reason uh, reason behind um, it, you know, being uh, a surviving. Uh, so because they're yeah. So um, what WCS is doing is we're we're trying to after this research, um, we are basically taking three main steps. And first of all is to promote or enhance and um, encourage the people to preserve it better. Uh, if we can um, preserve the years for um, the the bird the feathers for another five years, then um, that can reduce the number of birds being hunted by about twenty percent. And um, uh, second to that, uh, I'd like to do uh, more species distribution modeling, uh, which I am uh, learning, still learning how to do that. And then uh, we can target the specific areas where the birds are in decline and where it's practical to save them. Um, second, uh, last to that is um, to promote or inform the policy decision makers to at least, um, because, because where the demand for the birds um, stems from a, an area where uh, the birds are, uh, it's not within that distribution range, it's further up a higher altitudes, uh, so uh, basically the birds are found within 200 to 1800 meters above sea level and the, the area of the cultural use of it is um, 2000 meters above sea level which is hundreds of miles away from where it's found so um, we basically want to um, uh, ban or at least put a stop to the transferring of live birds, at least the feathers, uh, from the um, higher, uh, the lower elevations to towards the highlands region. So um, we're working on that. And for the hunters, generally, um, because the birds are quite picky about where they lay their eggs, um, they want hollow nests and hollow trees, and then they don't use the same nest twice. So they have to find another place to lay their eggs. So if the hunters cannot um, disturb or cut down the dead hollow trees, then maybe we can um, generate more or preserve the nest where they hunted. And um, to stick to traditional means of hunting, which is uh, the bow and arrow. Um, the guns generally, we believe they scare the birds away and that can um, interrupt with their um, yeah, range. So in summary, that's, um, that's my uh, study and um, hopefully the next stage is to go into more species distribution modeling and um, uh, study more about the ecology of the bird. Yeah, yeah that's very interesting. So that's at the border between ethnology, some yeah. ethnology studies yes. and uh, conservation. Yeah. And that, that's very fascinating. And I, I, um, I had a question during your, your talk. I was thinking, so do they use only the feathers of those birds or do they value somehow the meat of the yeah, bird? Yeah, the birds are actually from where it's, uh, from the people who are within that area. They don't hunt them for the meat. So it's only for it's the only feathers. It's only the feathers. And they're not using the feathers. It's the people from the outside who are demanding it. Um, so um, what I found out was they're quite hard to catch because they're in the higher canopies. So what they usually do is they target the nursing sites and then, so yeah, I think if they do, when they do get the birds, then they can, they probably eat the meat as well, but it's a higher um, concentration towards the feathers. And there's only like, they're predominantly black and they have like six or so red feathers on them and their contour body is also red. So they need like three birds or, mm. yeah, mm. so it's, it's, I really need to, like, we need to do something about these birds being killed, yeah. And um, the IUCN red list um, 
categorizing it as vulnerable was done back in um, 1990s towards that time so up until today that may have moved up to being threatened so um, it'd be good to revisit yeah, the yeah. category and I, I do have another question um, I did a bit of investigation about you actually I found yeah. out that you are Miss Papua New Guinea <laughs> if I'm right <laughs> yes so I want to know if this this image somehow helps you to uh, because you are also associated to WCS yes so if it helps you to promote more uh, public awareness yep. into conservation and how do you use this image yeah. as well um, I was lucky enough to have um, WCS help, I mean, release me or let me skip off work a bit to uh, enter the pageant. It's more, uh, the pageant is um, not necessarily a beauty pageant. Um, it's about being a cultural ambassador for our country to the Pacific. And so um, with my study, it's kind of linked together. Um, I've, uh, you know, um, interviewed people and um, gained some traditional ecological knowledge. And um, with WCS, sort of um, the work we do is more um, with Papua New Guinea. We have the like, we have this issue of landowner rights, and so we can um, come up with all these policies, um, information to give to policymakers to in implement. But then it all comes down back to the people. If they say yes, we want to preserve this, or yes, I can declare this as a you know a taboo, not not no hunting zone. But um, yeah, so you have to make the people happy. And one of the ways um, I think being this public figure in Papua New Guinea is I've been um, the the platform I used was uh, one of the most conservation and preservation because because of our biodiversity. I mean we have seven percent of the world's global species and um, it's dying out at a fast rate just because the government and the people the people themselves are not informed. Um, they they have these companies going in like giving them huge amount of cash and money so. Um, it all comes down to educating people and if you're just a nobody like you know they don't know you and they're not comfortable with you and then you go in and present them like okay this is this and don't do this don't do this then they're like yeah eh, okay <coughs> but um, yeah this having the platform of Miss PNG and a public figure in Papua New Guinea has um, I've, I've just I'm just like three months into my reign so hopefully throughout the whole year, then I can use this platform and um, yeah, inform the people through the media, um, social media, the newspaper and TV as well. So I have a big task ahead of me. And congratulations to Grace, who got the special mention prize for her talk at the conference. Hope to see you in Papua New Guinea. So now let's give the microphone to another keynote speaker of this conference. I'm uh, Eric Meyert. I um I came here to Brisbane, to the University of Queensland, to, um, to talk to the, uh, the many students that came up here for the, um, for the excellent conservation course. Um, and what I really wanted to talk about is my experience as, as both, both a conservation scientist and a, um, a conservation practitioner, uh, because I think a lot of people that their started their career, they're developing as conservation scientists and they develop as conservation scientists because they care about conservation. Um, but they're actually quite different paths and it's, 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 it's a trick to find the right way to combine what you're doing in conservation science and develop through that something that actually has positive impact on mm -hmm. conservation practice. So uh, I took my time, I, uh, I gave a plenary, plenary speech, um, talked about how I, how I developed as a conservation scientist, how I started working initially in Indonesia, um, worked for as a scientist, as a, for a number of NGOs, and, uh, and more more recently as a as a research coordinator, 
uh, where we're really trying to develop the kind of science that can be implemented in, po in policy that, that, that touches the heart of people and allows us to, uh, to change things. So this is what, we, what I was talking about uh, in the hope that, um, um, that people would pick up some useful messages, some take-home messages that, um, that would allow them to or at least think a little bit more about how do I went about uh, developing or they were going to go about developing their own careers. And, uh, judging the the feedback uh, from the students, it's, it's been really positive. Um, many people say it's been really excellent. Uh, uh, the, the stuff I was talking about, um, um, really good thinking for them. So I'm very pleased I came out here, and it's been it's been great to have been invited by the University of Queensland uh, for this opportunity. Yeah, great. Um, so just to go back a bit into your talk, you, you mentioned quite early that pigs are far more important than orangutans. So can you describe this? I don't think anyone is in a position to, to, to judge what is more important than whether one species is more important than another species. But what I do know is that um, if you talk to people in places like uh, Kalimantan, Indonesian, Borneo, um, they get bored very quickly. You talk about orangutans. If you talk about pigs, they love it. They are really interested because pigs are important in their culture. Pigs provide important um, contribution to their, their diet. Uh, they like hunting pigs. There's a lot of excitement about it. Um, so my argument has always been, I mean, pigs are threatened by the same factors as orangutans, overhunting and, and habitat loss, pretty much. Um, if people are not interested in orangutans, well, work on pigs. You probably achieve co-benefits for orangutans at the same time. But uh, so far, no one is listening. So uh, I'll keep spreading the, the pig message and see if someone uh, someone pays attention. Right, and yeah, something else um, you also mentioned that we can get also useful information from the best uh, literature, for example. And you found out in a book from Alfred Wallace that by the time, um, yeah, he could see several orangutans in a day, and nowadays we consider orangutans as a solitary species. So he was kind of. Um, questioning this. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just asking students because everyone is pushed to, to be in front of, like, uh, be at, at the top of their science and develop new methods. And um, But there's a whole lot of stuff written there in these old books that is it's just super interesting that provides you insights into how, how nature functioned, how species functioned in a way that we can't see anymore because so much has changed even over time periods of like 150 years. And indeed, I mentioned the example of, of um, of, of Wallace, um, who was collecting specimens uh, whilst thinking about evolution, um, how we would shoot 11 orangutans in a day. And that's, those are such hard, large numbers. I mean, very, very, very few people will ever see that. And if you go consistently through the old literature and you look at species encounter rates like that, you realize that species were um, far more common uh, in those days. And that, that makes you think again, what does that mean? I mean, if something occurs at like a density that's five or 10 times higher than now, it, it changes the sociology of the species, the behavior. So what we're seeing now, as if we look and go into the forest as a, as a scientist, maybe a very narrow window of what we are observing and doesn't really tell us that much necessarily about what the species truly is in its natural state. Yeah, right. Um, last but not least, um, you also pointed out that there are um, field of studies that are uh, understudied in conservation. 
And you pointed out the importance of maybe in the future implement more such kind of studies. So I think those included psycho psychology, sociology. Yeah, I, th I think conservation science needs to. Conservation science comes from conservation biology, and it's generally the kids that care most about animals that want to go into something biological, and they see that the species they care about are disappearing. So you want to do something about conservation. That that's all great. What I'm saying is conservation is really about managing society, about managing values that people have. And we need, a lot of, a lot, we need to learn a lot from people or scientists that, that deal with those values that we don't know, that as, as conservation biologists don't really understand. I wouldn't say not understand, but not from a scientific point of view, um, including indeed psychology and legal studies and religious studies. And there's a whole bunch of, of interesting sciences out there that could really help us understand conservation a lot better. And I would push anyone to, uh, to step outside their own boundaries, their comfort zone, um, and look at these other studies and look at these other sciences and see what we can learn to become better and more effective conservationists. More effective in a limited amount of time to save the biodiversity, to save the environment. Our two next speakers are good examples of promising conservationists. Those two young women both won the second prize for the best talk of the conference. So let's hear more about their research. I'm Angela Recalde Salas. I'm a PhD student at the Center for Marine Science and Technology at Gordon University in Perth, Western Australia. I'm Colombian. And uh, I be, well, my research project is about bilingual acoustics. So, and how to use the acoustics in conservation and optimal monitoring and management. But basically, what I'm doing is trying to estimate how frequently the animals vocalize and uh, how this vocalization might change if we got vessels passing through, if we got more wind, more individuals, and how this might affect the probability of detection, the individuals when we use only acoustics and we are not actually looking at the, at the, at, at the area the animals are passing by. Industry usually spends a lot of time using acoustics because it's cheaper and you can monitor bigger areas but they are always asking of the likelihood of detecting individuals and that's when my research is trying to approach the, this likelihood of detection and giving industry um, information on how long monitoring should be how big an area for monitoring should be and in that way the impacts of underwater noise could be control and could be mitigated in a better in a better way so what I'm using is uh, uh, I'm combining two different methodologies I'm combining uh, acoustical data with uh, land-based data so for the acoustics I'm basically tracking everything that is vocalizing every whale that is vocalizing underwater I'm working with three species humpback whales blue whales and right whales in areas with different anthropogenic use so areas with shipping noise, areas with recreational vessels, and areas with not much going around, so I can compare uh, the detection and the vocalization rates. And uh, at the same time, when I'm recording, I'm looking uh, using a theodolite connected to a computer. I'm looking above water to see what is happening there. And uh, then I combine both data sets, and I could say, okay, this individual was vocalizing at this time, this individual was this group was a mother with a calf and they were approaching a vessel or they were traveling or what they were doing uh, and then I could say and they were six individuals in the area but 
only three were vocalizing. So that's kind of the, the, the research I'm doing. And hopefully with that, uh, I will be able to tell industry, well, if uh, you have these conditions, the minimum time that you need to spend to monitor the population, uh, at least 50% of the population, 70% of the population, just using acoustic, needs to be two months, three months and under these conditions. And um, also, uh, another part of my research is sound transmission changes uh, with the conditions in the area. So sometimes you can have monitoring acoustically 10 kilometers, for example, but other times only 5 kilometers because you have a vessel passing through. That is another question within my research uh, that I will include to give industry which area they should monitor. If it's an area with a lot of traffic, they might need to increase the area of monitoring. But if it's an area where uh, they, there is not much going on, they might need to, they might, they might monitor a smaller area and that will be a little bit cheaper because you need less time and less area to monitor. So yeah, that's what, basically that's what I'm doing. <laughs> cool, uh, it's now the third day of the conference. What do you think of CCS Australia so far? It's been great. I mean, I've been catching up with people and seeing that uh, they're doing so many interesting things and uh, working with plants and genetics. And I've seen uh, many people using acoustics as well, which is very exciting because it's not a field that you use too much in conservation. Everyone talks about noise and everyone talks about acoustics, but it's not really a priority in conservation even if everyone talks about that. <laughs> so it's been, it's been interesting and here in the plenaries is just so much encouragement that it gives inspiring, you Inspiring, yeah. Exactly, it's inspiring and uh, it gives you an opportunity to network with people with lots of experience in conservation and uh, that's really nice. And it's really good also catch up with other students and see what everyone is doing and uh, get ideas, get feedback on your research and um, share your research and that's really good. And it's more relaxed than going to these big conferences where you're so scared of right. making mistakes. <laughs> but here is kind of more uh, a friendly environment. So I think it's, it's good when you start, you know, you don't have much results to share and stuff, so it's good. Um, hello, my name is Kay Critchell. I'm a PhD student at James Cook University Townsville. I am looking at the way microplastics affect the ocean, uh, specifically looking at uh, modeling the movement and accumulation of microplastics, also looking at the way they affect the physiology of small fish, and eventually developing a risk assessment procedure for microplastics. All right, so you gave a talk here at CCS Australia. Yes. And so that's the beginning of your PhD, but can you, do you have already some outcomes, some prim preliminary results that you would like to share? So I've just re recently started the modeling of the microplastics. Uh, and it takes a really long time to develop a model accurately, um, but I'm getting some good results from my previous work with the larger plastic items, the ones that are buoyant and driven by the wind. And um, it's quite common knowledge when you go to the beach that um, things that float uh, wash up on beaches that face the wind, but um, it's never been described in science before. So I've recently put a paper in for review about that, saying that it's a really big, that's where the plastics are going to accumulate, but modeling is always a developing process. And 
yeah, so that's really exciting and that's some of the stuff I presented here at yeah. the conference. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And So how did you come into studying the impact of plastic on, on yeah. wildlife? <laughs> yeah, completely by accident. Um, in my second and third year, I started working with my professor, Mark Hammond. He's a um, turtle biologist physiologist, but he has a real passion for plastic debris. Um, I started working with him doing an internship, and in my third year of uni, I did a special topic looking at um, the amount of plastic that will be washed out of our local river in the wet season. And it turned out that over 30,000 items would be washed from the river in the wet season. Then Kay made her official switch to the study of plastics for her honors research. She was supposed to study baby turtles, but instead, one day she came to her supervisor and told him that she wanted to study plastics because it was much more important to her and to the world. In the second part of this interview, I was asking Kay to describe what I called continents of plastics that are floating in different oceans. If you want to have a better look at it, you can Google it. Or if you want to know what are their impacts, um, you may watch the documentary Midway by Chris Jordan. We call them um, just accumulations. We don't really have a specific term for them, um, but a lot of people refer to them as the gaia garbage patches. Um, but it, they're more like a soup. The plastic is accumulating in those areas due to the currents and the winds, but it's at such different densities that it floats all through the water column, makes it really available for all sorts of living things, which is a shame. Um, in the, the big oceans in the world, the currents move in such a way that there's a, a northern and a southern gaia, uh, which is where the water is circling around. And in each one of those, there's an accumulation of plastics. So, so you said there are six? There are five. Five? Yeah, five big ones. And their size is about the size of yeah, it, country? Yeah, it changes, but the really big one in the northern Pacific, they say, is about the size of Texas. Um, so it's pretty well, big. Yeah. yeah. At the end of your talk, you, you kind of recommended the people, encouraging the people yeah. to... Um, like to take some individual actions. So for example, every time you go to a shop, instead of taking plastic bags, and still people do that a lot, mm -hmm. you can just take your backpack or uh, this, um, well, we always say like conference bags. Um, yeah, made of canva canvas yeah. or a fabric. Yeah, yeah they're really good. Um, bamboo fiber is really fabulous product. Uh, I think everyone should be wearing and using bamboo fabric. It's really sustainable and it's really, it's good for the environment. But I think everyone, uh, has a responsibility to reduce the amount of disposable plastic that we use in our everyday life because it doesn't go away. Um, so it's really important to take those individual steps. Yeah, it takes about, I think, 100 years for yeah. plastic to decompose. So it's quite a lot. In the documentary called Bag It, if you ever get a chance to watch that, it's a very good documentary um, about plastic bag use and generally disposable plastic use. Um, but we don't recycle plastic bags in the Western world, we send it over to developing countries to do it there because it's such a horrible process. It's too late to be a pessimist anyway, so let's end this interview with some hope and positive actions. There is light at the end of the tunnel, definitely. Um, if, if people take the responsibility to reduce the use and we can reduce what's entering the ocean, obviously there's not much we can do about what's already there. I mean, beach cleanups are brilliant, we can remove that and responsibly you get rid of that. Um, but I think if we can reduce what's entering the ocean, that's the most important thing we can do for marine debris. And that's completely doable. 
Let's go back to Earth with our next speaker talking about grassland conservation in India. My name is Trishant Simlai. Uh, I come from Bang- I work in Bangalore, uh, from India. Uh, currently, I work as a consultant with an organization called the Foundation for Ecological Security, which is based in Gujarat, in India. Uh, the kind of work that I'm doing is on protected area planning in India. So we are trying to set up an online protected area observatory which looks at uh, how protected area management is being done in these places. I had a presentation, I had a talk. Um, so my research interests are very wide. Um, um, initially I started working with tigers as almost every Indian in conservation <laughs> does. Uh, but I sort of proceeded into uh, human wildlife conflict. Uh, after which, I, uh, uh, after I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Kent in England, uh, I, I sort of specialized in spatial conservation planning and systematic conservation planning. Um, so my talk uh, looked at how grasslands in India uh, are converted very rapidly and termed as wastelands. And uh, the talk I gave was part of my MSc dissertation work, which uh, looked at how to prioritize conservation for grasslands. But what happens with many prioritization processes is that they only look at ecology, the ecological processes that uh, for prioritization, so only looks at species distribution models and where grasslands are, uh, which is problematic because if you don't look at the social and political constraints of conservation planning, uh, these kind of plans don't work. Uh, it's, it's never result in uh, action on the ground. So uh, I incorporated some social and political constraints in conservation planning as part of my modeling process uh, and identified areas that needs conservation attention. Uh, that does not mean that it needs to be declared protected areas in all those areas, but uh, need to be managed for better grassland conservation. So that's what my talk was about. Currently, uh, my research has got nothing to do with spatial conservation planning. I've proceeded into social sciences. I, I am, in fact, uh, just drafting a PhD proposal on political ecology. So I, uh, my research basically will look at how conservation is becoming more and more militarized in nature. So how military practices are getting more and more imbibed into conservation. So things like shoot-to-kill policies and the use of military technology like radars and drones and how that is problematic to peop- local people who live in those areas and how those policies can in fact be uh, misused by conservation authorities for uh, other kinds of crime. So that's the kind of uh, research that I'm currently looking at. Okay, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So Trishan, what, what do you think of the conference so far? Uh, I think it's been great. Um, there is a lot of international participation, uh, way more than uh, the last conference I attended. Um, which is it's been very good to network with all these people especially from the East Asian uh, region that's I mean I'd never met people from Fiji and Solomon Islands before so that's that was great to meet them and see the kind of conservation that is actually happening in this region so I think SCCS Australia does great to attract people from from this region uh, which the other SCCS is normally don't because the geographical space is not that much so you, you was at SCCS Bangalore yes, last September, Yes, I've done, right? I've done uh, SCCS Cambridge twice mm-hmm. and SCCS Bangalore all four times. Okay. So uh, I've, I've got a fairly good idea about how SCCS's work uh, in, I mean, Cambridge is the main one. I think it probably is the most international one, uh, but it's been running for a really long time. Uh, uh, I think SCCS Bangalore has a lot of people which come uh, in the conference, but it's dominated by Indians. 
there is less international participation in the SCCS Bangalore, though it is increasing every mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. uh, SCCS Australia has done, I think, really well to uh, advertise really well for international uh, students to come and present. And uh, uh, it's been great networking with all of them. Uh, I think one of the best things I liked about SCCS Australia uh, till now, uh, uh, I mean, initially I thought that that would be bad because they most of the other SCCS give you 15 minutes to give your presentation and they give only seven. Uh, but that has sort of made them include more student talks. SCCS Australia is much more intimate than SCCS Bangalore or Cambridge. Uh, one reason that it's over ten, nine, nine to ten days, SCCS Australia, and it actually gives you time to sit with people you're, you have common interests in or just meet people who are doing some really cool conservation work from all over the world and uh, you know absorb as much as you can. Uh, in the other conferences you get very little time to do that. So I think SCCS Australia stands out for that. It's spraying so fast. If we do not stop poaching now, it should be even less than 10 years. We won't be able to see these elephants alive. They will all be gone. You know, 20 years ago, I used to work right here in this park, and we were talking about the same things. And here we are 20 years later, and the problem is worse. The price of ivory has never been as high as it is today. It's worth more than gold. And that alone needs to send some alarm bells off. My husband always used to say that humans are in fact the endangered species because we've stepped out of nature. We're actually jeopardizing our own survival. So, you know, you reap what you sow and, and that's, it's as simple as that really. Wildlife officials say it is the biggest mass shooting of animals on record in Kenya. A gang of poachers slaughtering a family of 11 elephants and hacking off their tusks. At the port of Mombasa, another seizure. Since the beginning of the year, at least seven tons of ivory have been seized at the port of Mombasa alone. It's the battles that we're fighting. In my opinion, it equates to the drug trade. It's big money. You have to be on your toes. Flying around these guys, they shoot at you. That's the first thing they do. 90% of the orphans that we have at the moment are due to poach, where the mothers have been killed because of ivory. So it has to be considered a very big problem. When they lose their families, they will mourn about it. They will still grieve. He doesn't know what has happened to his mother. If you were that baby elephant, how would you feel? That's exactly how they feel. The solution is, of course, to ban the sale of all ivory. It should be totally outlawed. Anyone who buys ivory nowadays has blood on their hands. They've killed not only the elephant that wore the tusks, but all its dependent young as well. We're gonna hunt those who kill you. Come on, baby. 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 Come
you might decide to forgive if someone has done something wrong to you. They also do that. They are like other human beings living in the wild. We need to respect them. They deserve protection. They deserve a right to life. Take action. Stop the ivory trade. Is the message you can read at the end of this campaign of the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust for iWorry.org. And this is also what our next speaker is doing by investigating the Chinese ivory trade. Hello everyone, my name is Yu Fang Gao. Uh, most people just call me Gao. I'm a graduate student uh, at Yale University and I come from China. At SCCS Australia, Gao gave a talk titled Elephant Ivory Trade in China. Trends, Drivers and Possible Solutions. In this talk, he analyzed the three ivory markets in the Chinese society. Um, so the white market refers to the legal market. And in China, there are legal licensed ivory factories and ivory retail outlets. So in, in whole China, uh, there are about 36 uh, ivory factories and 145 ivory retail outlets. So ivory sold in these markets are legal. This is the first type of market, the, the white market. And the second type of market is the black market, which is the illegal market. An illegal market takes two forms, including the online trading forum and also the, the offline illegal shops. This is the black market. And the third type of market is the gray market, which I refers to the live auction of ivory products. And this is market is is uh, the legality of this market is uncertain because the current ivory policy in China doesn't differentiate the antique and new ivory. So some people perceived the auction is a legitimate trade channel for this antique ivory. But sometimes, you know, sometimes the new ivory can be labeled as an antique and put on auction. So this is a shrimp market uh, that I described in my research. To conduct his research, Gao leads mainly undercover investigations. He also analyzed large volume of ivory trading data in China's markets. So basically what I found is um, the white market or the legal market has increased from, I think it's about, uh, I, I, I don't remember the uh, exact number, but it's about nine factories in 2004 to 37 factories in 2014 and about like 20 or so uh, ivory retail outlets in 2004 to 145 so the white market has increased in the in the past decade and also the black market in the black markets uh, most ivory items are small machine produced items such as the bangles and pendants and Gao said that they are sold at low ivory price in the black market for about 2,000 US dollars, which is about 10 times more than the price in Africa, which makes the ivory smuggling very lucrative. This is the black market. As for the grey market, uh, you know that the grey market is, is strongly correlated to the elephant poaching level in Africa. This is what I found. And I also investigated the drivers for, for these three type of markets. Um, I found that the arts investment after um, 2008 is the very important driver. Most of, um, many Western conservationists talk about the Chinese middle class uh, buying the ivory to show off their social status. But what I found is um, most Chinese believe it is not the middle class, it is the, the certain rich, Chinese call them Baofa Hu. 
And Gao told me that the reason why they buy ivory is because they believe ivory is a very good long-term investment. And unfortunately, this is a driver that has led to substantial increase for the demand of ivory in China. In the second part, we are going back to the source of those three markets that Yufeng described, which is elephant poaching. One elephant is killed every 15 minutes in Africa for ivory. The source of the ivory in China, uh, in the legal part, so for the white market, mm -hmm. uh, Chinese government has some stockpile of ivory, legal ivory, which is... Uh, what do you mean by legal, legal ivory? ivory? I mean, they got this ivory before the CITES ban, before the international ivory trade was banned. What Gao means here is that this ivory comes from old sources, a kind of stockpile. In 1981, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, CITES, secured an agreement among its members to ban the international trade in ivory. The goal was to stop the decline of African elephant populations. However, an analysis of elephant populations data from 1979 to 2007 found that some of the 37 countries in Africa with elephants continued to lose substantial numbers of them, which seems to be explained by the presence of unregulated domestic ivory markets in and near countries with declines in elephant populations. You know, this issue is very complex because some countries would like to legalize the ivory trade. For example, in some southern African countries, they would like to sell ivory to China and even Japan so that they can use the money they earn from this uh, ivory trade to support the local community to do conservation in their country because they have already have large uh, population of elephants in their country, for example in Botswana. And I just mentioned China import uh, 62 tons of ivory from 4,000 African countries. So this is also a source of legal ivory supply for China's white market. Yeah, But for the black market, yes, indeed. Um, um, now China, more and more Chinese are going to Africa and they are doing business in Africa, they are doing uh, travel in Africa. And ivory smuggling, where it is large scale or small scale, is happening. I would suggest it is very important to work with the law enforcement uh, units, and it's very important to improve or upgrade the efforts for law enforcement in this issue. China has a very, a very, very strict uh, law in about uh, environmental con um, conservation, but usually the implementation of law is not so good. So I would suggest it's very important to strengthen the law enforcement effort. But whether I'm going to work with this law enforcement, uh, I'm not sure at this moment, at least very clear my, my career. Okay. Yeah. At the end of this interview, I asked Gao, how does he position himself as a Chinese studying in the US, investigating the Chinese ivory trade, how does he see his future if he has to go back to China and work in China? <laughs> That's a tricky question. So I tried to, in, in this, by doing this research, uh, because as a Chinese studying in the US, uh, I have a very uh, advantage point that allows to me to see all these different cultural outlooks different perspectives in different countries. So by doing this research, I try to bring people together, try to understand what is really going on and how can we bring all these 
different perspective, different people with different understanding about a pro problem together and work together to solve this problem. This is the purpose or, or this is my goal of doing this research. So um, as you just mentioned, it's very difficult to position myself. Uh, I try to be as independent as possible during the research. So I don't accept money from any government or any NGO. I only I got my grant from Yale University, an academic an academic institution, and I try to be independent and try to listen to both sides and try to understand their concerns, their insight, and to see why they think in this way and why the other think in that way, and how can I bring these different perspectives together to help them achieve a more comprehensive understanding of this issue and to find a common ground where we can work together to solve this problem. If you want to know more about Yu Feng's research, you might just Google his name, Yu Feng Gao. You will find out that he has won already many prizes. He has also been interviewed by the National Geographic. And for this conference, he won the first prize of the best talk. He also had to leave earlier. At the end of this conference, he was invited to give a CITES workshop in Hangzhou, China. So congratulations, Yufeng. Keep going. The elephants and the people need you. And now, let's hear the voice of another conservationist. My name is Sean Maxwell. I'm studying uh, conservation decision-making here at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. I'm in the first year of my PhD. Uh, at the moment, uh, we're looking at extreme weather events and their impact on species. I've had a chance to present some of that work here. It's been a great opportunity. Uh, our research suggests that, uh, we, well, we just reviewed the impact of extreme weather events on different species. We looked through literature back to 1935 and found 500 or over 500 documented impacts of extreme weather events um, on, on different species. The extreme weather events we considered were floods, droughts, uh, cyclones or hurricanes, typhoons, heat waves and cold waves. Um, so some, some impacts were, were good on species. There, there are cases of uh, deer uh, inc having increased food availability following a hurricane. Uh, there, were, there were a few neutral impacts where uh, there was no response from communities after an extreme weather event. But the overwhelming majority of impacts were negative, uh, some of which were quite concerning. There were, there were uh, instances, 16 reported instances of uh, popul populations going locally extinct following an extreme weather event. Um, also, uh, diff different cases uh, of uh, many cases of species just uh, showing big declines in their population size. Other interesting ones uh, where there's declines in fecundity or um, declines or increased susceptibility to disease. So there's a, a case of lions in in the Serengeti. Um, being able to tolerate a series of diseases in isolation, but when a drought came through, uh, there was co-infection, led to co-infection and a lot of uh, a lot of mortality. So there's these sort of interesting impacts that uh, that we we decided to summarise and categorise and try to try to publish. Uh, interestingly, as well, we we plotted where the the documented cases were uh, around the planet um, and found that. 
there are some regions like the USA, Europe and Australia where the the amount of studies as sort of matches the, the amount of extreme weather events, which is which is a good thing. But there's other regions, um, particularly Western Africa, Central Africa, where there's been a lot of floods and drought and cycle, uh, and, and and also uh, Eastern Asia, Western Asia, uh, Southern Asia, where there's been a lot of cyclone events and floods, and there's um, little to no studies carried out on how species are responding to these events. Um, so there's a bit of a gap there, and, and of course. Um, these regions, uh, particularly uh, Southeast Asia, Western Asia, is uh, expected to receive more flooding and, and drought events in the future. So it's a bit of a concern there. We want to draw that to the attention to the, the public and hopefully have extreme weather events in, uh, more formally included in vulnerability assessments in the future. That's our, that's the goal. Great, thank you for this. And so what's, we are on the third day of the conference now, what do you think of the, the conference so far? Oh, it's been fantastic, it's been great to meet all the other people. I was here uh, two years ago for the student conference and um, it's great to see uh, some, some friends I met there but also see the conference develop and um, I think the quality of the research is really increasing and um, it's fascinating to hear what everyone's having to say from all around the world and uh, it's it's also leading to a few opportunities to collaborate with, with different students from different nations and uh, there's a lot of common interest and, but also different ideas so uh, yeah, it's great to be a part of the conference. My name is Natasha Peters. I'm working for the Bulgarian Society for the Protection of Birds which is BirdLife Bulgaria. Um, I started working on this project which kind of um, was independent just kind of became a uh, research project for me. So the overview of the project, which I'm presenting here at SCCS, I'm doing a poster, um, is basically to find out the um, cause of decline and the threats for the Egyptian vulture within Bulgaria and Greece. Um, basically, why um, are they disappearing? Why aren't they returning? And um, addressing those threats. So what we've done so far is uh, tag, satellite tag, um, 22 juveniles. Well. 20 juveniles, one ad adult and one subadult, and we found that the juveniles are um, have a high mortality in their first migration. This is because there's um, too few adults to lead them on their migration um, through the land, through Turkey, down to Africa. So what they're doing is trying to go over the Mediterranean on their own and dying at sea. So that's one of the reasons, because there's too few adults to lead them. And another reason is they have a high indirect poisoning in Greece, um, farmers will put out poison baits to try to kill foxes, feral dogs and wolves and vultures will ingest these and um, be poisoned. And the third main cause of uh, mortality that we found is in Africa. There's a high persecution there, again poisoning, electrocution or um, direct persecution through hunting. So. Um, we really need to focus our conservation efforts now within Africa because within Bulgaria they've pretty much been addressed. So it's just poisoning in Greece and um, conservation efforts within Africa. So that's kind of the focus now moving forward. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University.
Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primate cast and on Twitter at the primate cast.